turn to here uh, in God's word again, the first letter of Peter, first chapter, and we read the first nine verses, first letter of the Apostle Peter, and verses one to nine. For the uh, last time, I think we read these verses, we move on next week to what follows. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Last week, we were in verses 8 and 9, and... Uh, I had in mind to cover the whole lot of those two verses, but I stopped short and didn't go on to the words that we see at the end of verse 8. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I felt they needed time to themselves. They needed more time than could be slotted in at the end of the sermon on Sunday. So let's come to them tonight. But let me remind us all uh, some of what we said last week. We did say last week, and I'll say it again, that Peter here in this passage is describing the normal, present experience of Christian salvation. It's a present experience. It's not a future thing. There is a future dimension to our salvation that we've seen in verse 5. There is a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And that is what we are awaiting. And we long for that day. It is the goal of our faith. It is the destination we are longing for. When all our sin 
the sin that's in me, the sin that's in you, the sadness, the heaviness, the pain, the suffering of this sin-sick world will all be gone and we will see Jesus and we will have bodies like his and we with all the people of God from every generation will be gathered together. We'll see their faces as we see his face and what a day that will be. But there is a present salvation. Verse 9, Peter says here, In all of this you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And this is such an important question for us right now. What is real Christianity? What is the genuine thing? The genuine article. It is living, born-again Christianity. It's what Peter describes here as the living hope, which is utterly, unbreakably bolted onto the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The fact that Jesus is a living person a raised, resurrected man, a human person with a beating heart and a living soul. And yes, Jesus today has a beating heart. You might say, how do you know that? Well, he's human and he's alive. He's lost none of his humanity. His human heart he still retains and it is a beating, pulsating heart like ours. And we know that Jesus, who knows us, who hears us, who sees us, who feels so keenly our ups and our downs and our sorrows and our joys. Our knowledge of Jesus Christ is so unlike, so unlike. For example, uh, what you might experience, say, on a Remembrance Day ceremony in early November when you might remember the fallen dead of world wars and treasure their memories and associations we have with them. Our knowledge of Jesus Christ is so unlike that. We are alive because he is alive, and our hearts and his hearts, as it were, beat together. And that has consequences, and that is living and real Christianity. Now let me make a comment here, a comment about the subject of Christian emotions, Christian emotions. I might say the word emotion, and you might get quite emotional, okay? There are some circles, there are some Christian circles where you could say, I'm not going to name any names, I don't think that's at all helpful, but there may well be some Christian traditions where you might say, well, there is, there is a hyped-up emotionalism there. There's a lot of emotion. There's a whipping up of emotion. There's the manipulation of a great deal of emotion. And some Christian ministry may, as it were, direct itself at human emotions, simply to get human emotions going. But there's another extreme, isn't there? Which is to say, there really should be no emotions. We don't need to think about the emotions. This is just a... This is a sermon, this is really like a lecture, this is a talk, and uh, it's just about facts. 
it's, it's about truth. It has nothing to do with the emotion. It's all about the mind and the intellect and the understanding. And a preacher has no business whatsoever in thinking about emotions. Now, let's understand this. It would be quite wrong for me to preach so as to only address your emotions. At the same time, if the Spirit of God takes the Word of God that we have understood, and he brings the Christ of God into the core of our human personality, This must ultimately affect all our human faculties, including our emotions. And I want to come to say more about that later on. This is a genuine work of God that we should welcome and seek. Now, what did we say last time? We said, Peter says, though we do not see Jesus, we love him. We have a living, present-day, engaged, communicating relationship with him. Through the word and prayer, the living, powerfully, humanly felt activity of the Holy Spirit, the living Jesus is brought into our hearts and minds. And we also said this, though we do not see him now, we believe in him, we believe into him, we believe onto him. And we talked about that wonderful picture of reclining or rolling our souls back onto Jesus as a chair, if you like, or a resting place that can take all our weight. We can put all our confidence and all our trust in him because we've come to know him and to love him. The great George Whitfield, I say great, he was made great by God. He's been referred to already in the prayers tonight. He preached here in London. He preached to great crowds, crowds of 10, 20, 30,000 in Moorfields and in the, the Kennington area and elsewhere and he would preach through all seasons without a microphone, without amplification he would preach to the crowds and as you may have heard George Whitfield always said I want to preach a felt Christ I want and I want my people to know and to experience a felt Christ we must never be content brothers and sisters with a Christianity that is only notion. That is merely of the mind. That is a series of catechism answers, valuable though catechisms certainly are. Let me put it to you like this. Peter says in verse 3 that God has caused us to be born again. Born again. He'll go on to say later on in verse 23 that we have been born again born again. Now let's think about that expression, born again. What does it mean? Well, when a baby is born, the whole body of the baby is born, right? The whole baby entire comes out from the mother's womb and into the bright light of day and the whole body of that baby is born. There is a bodily birth when, when a child is born, isn't there? And when the word says that we must be born again and that we are born again, there is a 
being born again of the whole human faculty of the soul. We are bodies, but we are souls. And that soul includes mind and will and emotion. We should not be surprised that being born again would have, should have, does have great effects upon the whole of our personal human faculties. We are all, in our entirety, as people, born again. And that is normal living Christianity. It's the mind, it's the will, it's the emotion, it's the personality, it's what we are as people that is born again. And that's why Peter writes, as he does, I'm getting to it now, he talks about this rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, what does he mean by that? What is joy? Maybe we don't hear much about joy these days. Maybe you don't hear people say, rejoice, be full of joy. We, we might talk about enjoying ourselves. Maybe that's more common, isn't it, than talking simply about joy. But what is joy? What is joy? Do you know what joy is? Do you have, have you ever experienced joy? Joy of any kind. Delight. Happiness. Rich satisfaction. Elation. Euphoria. A bliss that can scarcely be described. And that's the language that Peter uses. Indeed, it is a joy that rises above language. He says that this joy, first of all, is inexpressible. It exceeds. It extends beyond. It rises above and transcends the power of human speech to give it expression. It's a joy that human words aren't enough to express. Words won't do. You've, I'm sure, seen people or come across people who receive some amazing news. I hope it's amazingly good news. And they say, I'm speechless. I'm speechless with joy. I can't find the words that would satisfactorily express just how, how wonderfully happy that has made me be. How grateful I now feel. I can find the richest words in my native tongue, but they don't do justice to the degree of joy that I now have. And that is the kind of thing that Peter is describing. It's a joy beyond words. It is literally a language that is, it is a joy that is unlanguaged. It is a wordless joy. And that's one reason, isn't it? Why Christians throughout the ages have done what people do when words alone can't express that joy. That's why Christians sing. Why has God given the human race the gift of music? Why did God in his great wisdom, on that fifth day, I believe, the fifth day of creation, caused the heavens to teem with birds that sing, so that 
Adam and Eve and the people he created could hear the sound of song and other beautiful sounds. Was it not so that ultimately the gift of music might be used, might be employed to give praise to God because music reaches parts of the soul that words can't and expresses those thoughts and emotions and longings and desires that words alone can't express. Whatever your taste of music might be, and it's very sad that uh, there have been over the history of the church what we might call worship wars over kinds of music. But music gives that expression, does it not, that words can't give. But Peter says something else, doesn't he? This joy is inexpressible and filled with glory. In fact, it's inexpressible because it's filled with glory. That's what makes it inexpressible. The origin of this Christian joy is not of this world. It's from a higher realm. It's from the realm of heaven. It's from above. It's from God. Think about what people sometimes say. Think of common sayings. You've heard people say, I'm so happy I'm, I'm on cloud nine. Where's cloud nine, I wonder? It's a long way up, isn't it? I'm sure if it's nine clouds up, it's a fair way above where we are. It's something, it's something heavenly. It's something people look for language and they fumble around and they say, I'm on cloud nine. Or they, they say, I'm over the moon. I'm over the moon, I'm above the moon, is, such is my joy. Or I'm walking on sunshine, as somebody once sang, didn't they? My joy is celestial, it's not of this world. And people use this kind of language, but understand this this evening. There are popular songs, and poetry, and sayings that employ this language, but the joy of the Christian believer that the Lord gives his people to know something of from time to time, sometimes more, sometimes less, that joy of which Peter writes is genuinely heavenly. It's genuinely from another place. It's from above. It transcends this world. It's above the clouds. It's above the moon. It's above the sun. It reaches up and reaches out to where God is to where Christ is. When you and I know joy in our salvation of the kind that Peter is describing, it is the joy of Jesus Christ himself in the heavenly glory where he is overflowing, as it were, from his own heart and cascading down into the hearts of those who are one with him, who share his joy, who share in the salvation that he has one for us. If you and I know anything about Christian joy, it is the joy of Jesus himself that we are experiencing. You might say to me tonight, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know anything about what you're saying. You might say to me, why are you giving us this, this emotion, these feelings? What's taken hold of you? Let me assure you, this is no fiction. 
This is no flight of fancy or of poetry. This, according to the word of God, is what Christians experience. To whom is Peter writing? Is he writing to some uniquely privileged, elevated group of hyper-saints, the most advanced Christians the world's ever known? I can't think he is. He's writing to scattered believers in a distant part of the Roman Empire. But he's saying, you know these things. I may not have seen your faces or have any evidence that you have experienced these things, but I know that you do because this is the nature of real, believing, living faith in Jesus Christ. And when God himself brings home to our hearts the realization that this Jesus is not a mere historical figure, is not a man in a Bible, in a book alone, that he is my Lord, my Savior, my brother, my friend, my flesh, my blood, that I am one with him, and where he is, by faith I am, and the Holy Spirit takes what is his and brings it home to my soul and to yours. When we know something of that, as Peter is surely describing, then we taste And know something of this joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Wayne Grudem, in his commentary, calls this the joy of heaven before heaven. Experienced now in fellowship with the unseen Christ. It's that joy of anticipation. Imagine you're looking forward to a lovely meal with friends on a, on a cold day, Christmas time or something, and you're, you, you walk past the kitchen and you can smell the delicious smell of the food that's cooking. It's going to be served in an hour or two, and you think, oh, my mouth is watering. Oh, that's lovely. I can't wait to sit down and eat that. You know what I'm talking about. That's what this joy is about. It's the, uh, it's the aroma of heaven reaching our spiritual nostrils and making our spiritual mouths water in anticipation and longing for the reality that we will one day know. We have glimpses of it, don't we, sometimes? Am I talking to people tonight who know something of what we're describing here? We could ask another question. Don't we see this? Why don't we see this all the time in everyone to the same degree? And the answer is that this is a work of the Holy Spirit. He's sovereign. He blows where he wills. Sometimes with greater intensity and effect. Sometimes with less. And every Christian believer will surely know times when this joy is more felt. And times when it is maybe less felt. But when it is felt and known, it is known to be the real thing. The genuine work of the Spirit. I... I can remember a time in the mid-1990s, 25 years ago now, where for a series of weeks, if not months, I would often wake up early in the morning with a, I'm telling you the truth, with a sense of indescribable joy that the Lord had given in his salvation. Not something that I've known regularly since. Not that I know today to the same degree. But there was such a time. These things happened. 
Individuals go through these seasons. Churches go through these seasons. Let me give you an example. I've been much helped by our brother Stuart Olliott recently. And he's written a book. It's a few years old now. It's called Something Must Be Known and Felt. Something That Must Be Known and Felt. Stuart Olliott, retired pastor. Sheila was in his congregation years ago. He's back in Liverpool now. But he's written this book. And he describes how nearly 60 years ago, he was under the ministry in Pembrokeshire of a, a Welshman called Howell Griffiths. Howell Griffiths. And this is Stuart Olliott's testimony of Howell Griffiths' ministry. Howell Griffiths preached lengthily. Doesn't sound too promising, does it? Filled his sermons with word pictures. Clearly felt in his soul the truths he was proclaiming. And poured out his love for everyone present. Accompanying that was an indefinable influence. As Howell spoke, heaven came to earth. Another voice was heard. The invisible world was more real than the visible one. There was a touch of glory. Christ was more precious than anything or anyone in the universe. The word came over with a self-authenticating force that was irresistible. Not to believe was not an option because it was indescribably foolish. The only wise thing to do was to trust the Lord completely and to love him with all of my heart, soul, mind and strength. And Stuart Olliott continues, You must not think that I was alone in receiving these impressions. After each sermon, the congregation sat in stunned silence, overcome by the sheer power of the word. Sometimes the silence was followed by spontaneous prayer, where one and another cried out to the Lord, wept their way to the cross, or renewed their vows to love him and to live for him. And I, like many others, was changed forever. We had experienced a small taste of what happens in revival. We all knew now that there was such a thing as preaching with unction, with anointing. And that there were panoramas of spiritual understanding and paths of spiritual experience of which we knew virtually nothing. You may say, what's the point of all that? What does that achieve? Is it just feelings, experiences, emotions? Notice how Stuart Olliott mentions this was a little taste of revival. The hearts of God's people being warmed by the felt presence of the Spirit of God as the Word of God came that the things of heaven appeared more real than the things on earth. Christ was with them. God was with them. Heaven came to earth. And people were changed. And you can think of the uh, ministry of a man like Stuart Olliott, so shaped, so formed, so influenced, so enriched, so blessed, so energized by being under the ministry of a man like Howell Griffiths. 
And this is what I'm urging us all tonight. Don't we want that to happen here with us? Not because we just want to have feelings that are extreme and unusual that we can boast about them. No, no. But that Christ might be more real and real to us and real to those who come here. That awakening and revival and power might truly break out among us here at Grove Chapel. A felt experience of salvation. Why should it not be true for us? Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And may the Lord make that more than a text, but a reality and a felt reality that we know and that cascades and floods and spreads far, far beyond and that other churches round about would know the same, that the Lord would visit us that we would know that he is with us in a new, refreshing season of his visitation here. Let's pray together, shall we? O Lord God in heaven, in a dry and weary land we seek you, Our souls can feel dried up inside us. We can feel that we have become strangers to these things. And, O Lord, we do what we only can do is we pray. We pray, O Lord, come in a way that every member of this congregation, from the oldest to the youngest, is visited by your power, is enabled to see the reality of Jesus Christ, maybe for the first time. O Lord, that he would be bigger to us, that your grace would be more gracious to us, that the work of the Holy Spirit, invisible though real, would seem and be more real to us, that, Lord, we would all recognize that we have been saved by you and for you to know you. O Lord God in heaven, we cry out to you, Bring the things of heaven right down to earth in a new way, in a blessed season of outpouring that we will know that our prayers would be touched with coals from heaven, that our love would be kindled with a fresh sight of how great your love is for us, that we would see Jesus Christ crucified and we would see what he did to come and fill our empty souls with himself and with love and with power. O Lord God, we are crying out to you in our need that you would come to us again. For Lord, you are full of mercy. We have read, O Lord, of those years gone by when your saints had their hearts strangely warmed. We have read of those days when miners from Bristol would come up to the surface above the mines, their faces streaked with tears as the gospel of the Son of God who loved them, hit their hearts, got into their very souls. 
Lord, some of us have been through times when we have heard your servants preach as angels from heaven with anointed lips, bringing tidings of joy and gospel blessings that have moved us, that have changed us, that have caused our eyes to open like fountains, Lord God. Oh, Lord, and yet too many of us, and I myself, oh, Lord, feel so barren and so dry, so in need of more from you. O Lord our God, come. Come in a way that changes all that we are without any alteration, Lord, that we would not go back to being hard-hearted. May our hearts be softened. May our minds soar to heaven above. Come and visit us with your salvation. Enter every trembling heart. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.